20. Rekin gameth, swat the corporation. Surely there is not in the world an industry which, for sheer pictorial magnificence, rivals the modern manufacturing of steel. In the first place, the scale of everything is inexpressibly stupendous. To speak of a row of six blast furnaces, with mounts a hundred feet above the ground, and chimneys rising perhaps another hundred feet above these mounts, is not, perhaps, impressive, but to look at such a row of furnaces, to see their fodder of ore, dolomite, and coke brought in by train loads, to see it fed to them by the skip, to hear them roar continually for more, to feel the savage heat generated within their bodies, to be told in shouts, above the din, something of what is going on inside these vast, voracious, savage monsters, and to see them dripping their white-hot blood when they are picked by a long steel bar in the hands of an atom of a man this is to a witness an almost terrifying allegory of mankind's achievement. The gas generated by blast furnaces is used in part in the hot blast stoves gigantic tanks from which hot air, at very high pressure, is admitted to the furnaces themselves, and is also used to develop steam for the blowing engines and other auxiliaries. In the furnaces the molten iron, because of its greater specific gravity, settles to the bottom, while the slag floats to the top. The slag, by the way, is not, as I had supposed, altogether worthless but is used for railroad ballast and in the manufacture of cement. The molten iron drawn from the blast furnaces runs in glittering rivulets which, at a distance of 20 or 30 feet, burn the face and the eyes, into a label cars which are like a string of devil soup bowls, mounted on railroad trucks ready to be hauled away by a locomotive and served at a banquet in hell. That is not what happens to them. However, the locomotive takes them to another part of the plant, and their contents, still molten is poured into the mixers. These are gigantic cauldrons as high as houses, which stand in rows in an open-sided steel shed, and the chief purpose of them is to keep the soup hot until it is required for the converters when it is again poured off into a label cars and drawn away. The converters are in still another part of the grounds. They are huge, pear-shaped retorts, resembling in their action those tea kettles which hang on stands and are poured by being tilted, but a million tea kettles could be lost in one converter and the boiling water from a million tea kettles, poured into a converter, would be as one single drop of ice water let fall into a red-hot stove. In the converters the metal of silicon, manganese, and carbon are burned out of the iron under a flaming heat which, by means of high air pressure, is brought to a temperature of about 3400 degrees. It is the blowing of these converters, and the occasional pouring of them, which throws the Vesuvian glow upon the skies of Birmingham at night. The heat they give off is beyond description. Several hundred feet away you feel it smiting viciously upon your face, and the concrete flooring of the huge shed in which they stand is so hot as to burn your feet through the soles of your shoes. The most elaborate display of fireworks ever devised by Mr. Payne would be but a poor thing compared with the spectacle presented when a converter is poured. The whole world glows with golden heat, and is filled with an explosion of brilliant sparks and as the molten metal passes out into the sunlight that light is by contrast so feeble that it seems almost to cast a shadow over the white-hot vats of iron. Next come the tilting open hearth furnaces, where the iron is subjected to the action of lime at a very high temperature. This removes the phosphorus and leaves a bath of commercially pure iron which is then steamed into a hundred-ton label, wherein it is treated in such a way as to give it the properties required in the finished steel. What these properties may be, depends of course, upon the purpose to which the steel is to be put, rails, for example, must, above all, resist abrasion, 
and consequently had a higher carbon content than, say, reinforcing bars for concrete work. To obtain various qualities in steel are added carbon, ferromanganese, or ferrosilicon in proportions differing according to requirements. In the next process steel ingots are made. I lost track of the exact detail of this, but I remember seeing the ingots riding about in their own steel cars, turning to an orange color as they cooled, and I remember seeing them pounded by a hammer that stood up in the air like an elevated railroad station, and I know that pretty soon they got into the blooming mill and were rolled out into blooms, after which they were handled by a huge contrivance like a thumb and forefinger of steel which though the blooms weigh five tons apiece picked them up much as you might pick up a stick of red candy still orange hot, the blooms find their way to the rolling mill, where they go dashing back and forth upon rollers and between rollers the latter working in pairs like the rollers of large ringers, squeezing the blooms, in their successive passages, to greater length and greater thinness, until at last they take the form of long, red, glowing rails, after which they are sawed off, to the accompaniment of a spray of white sparks, into rail lengths, and run outside to cool, and I may add that, while there is more brilliant heat to be seen in many other departments of the plant, there is no department in which the color is more beautiful than in the piles of rails on the cooling beds some of them still red as they come from the rollers, others shading off to a rose and pink, and finally to their normal cold steel gray. Presently along comes a great electromagnet, from somewhere in the sky it drops down and touches the rails, when it rises bunches of them rise with it, and, after sailing through the air, are gently deposited upon flat cars, here, even after the current is shut off, some of them may try to stick to the magnet, as though fearing to go forth into the world, if so, it gives them a little shake, whereupon they let go, and it travels back to get more rails and load them on the cars, iron ore, coal, and limestone, the three chief materials used in the making of steel, are all found in the hills in the immediate vicinity of Birmingham, I am told that there is no other place in the world where the three exist so close together, that is an impressive fact, but one grows so accustomed to impressive facts, while passing through this plant, that one ceases to be impressed, becoming nearly dazed, if I were asked to mention one especially striking item out of all that welter, I should think of many things things having to do with vastness, with gigantic movements and mutations, with Niagara-like noises, with great bursts of flame suggesting fallen fragments from the sun itself but above all I think that I should speak of the apparent absence of men. There were some 4,000 men in the plant, I believe, at the time we were there, but excepting when a shift changed, and a great army passed out through the gates, we never saw a crowd, indeed I hardly think we saw a group of any size, here and there two or three men would be doing something something which, probably, we did not understand, in the window of a locomotive cab or that of a traveling crane, we would see a man, we kept passing men as we went along, and sometimes as we looked from a high perch over the interior of one of the great sheds, we would be vaguely conscious of men scattered about the place, but they were very small and gray and inconspicuous dots upon the surface of great things going on going on, seemingly by themselves, with a sort of mad, mechanical, majestic, molten sweep, at this time, when the great efficient organization started by Bismarck is being devoted entirely to destruction. It is interesting to recall that the idea of industrial welfare work originated in Germany during the period of Bismarckian reorganization. So, paradoxically, the very forces which, on one hand, were building towards the new records for the extinction of life established in the present war, were, 
upon the other hand, developing plans for the safeguarding of life and for making it worth living plans which had enormously affected the industrial existence of the civilized world. The broad theory of industrial welfare work was brought to this country by engineers, chemists, and workmen who had resided in Germany, but, where this work developed over their long cooperative lines, it has remained for Great Britain and the United States to work it out in a more individualistic way. In this country welfare work has come as a logical part of the general industrial development. The first step in this development was the assembling of small, weak industrial units into a large, powerful, effective units that is to say, the formation of great corporations and trusts. The second step was the coordination of these great industrial alliances for efficiency. The third step was the achievement of material success. When our great corporations were in their formative period, Effort was concentrated on making them successful, but with success came thoughts of other things. It began to be seen, for example, that whereas the old small employer of labor came into personal contact with his handful of workmen, and could himself supervise their welfare, some plan must now be devised for doing this work in a large, corporate way. Thus welfare work developed in the United States, and it is interesting to observe, now that many of our great corporations are finding time and funds to expend upon purely aesthetic improvements, and that, in the construction of the most modern American industrial plants, architects, landscape gardeners, and engineering men work in cooperation, so that, instead of being lopsided, the developments are harmonious and oftentimes beautiful, on work calculated to prevent accidents in mines, not only the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, but all the leading mining companies in the state join for conference. As a result the number of accidents steadily decreases. Nine years ago one man was killed, on an average, for every 100.000 tons of iron ore raised. The record at the time of our visit was one man to 450.000 tons. In the coal mines, where nine years ago one man was killed for every 75.000 tons raised, The recent record is one man for 650.000 tons. In 1914, 126 men were killed in the coal mines of Alabama. In 1915, though the tonnage was about the same, this number was reduced to 63, which was a record. All this is the result of safety work. Aside from humane considerations, said an official of the Tennessee Company, this concern realizes that the man is the most valuable machine it has. This gentleman was one of the ablest men we met in the South, while taking us through the company's plant, and explaining to us the various operations, he was interesting, but the real enthusiasm of the man did not crop out until he took us to the company's villages and showed us what was being done for the benefit of operatives and their families, and, of course, for the benefit of the company as well for he was a corporation official of the modern school and he knew that by benefiting its men a corporation necessarily benefits itself. The story of the Tennessee Company's work among its employees, which began about five years ago, some time after the company was taken over by the United States Steel Corporation, is too great to be more than touched on here. In the Department of Health 36 doctors, 16 nurses, and a squad of sanitary inspectors are employed. The Department of Social Science covers education, welfare, and horticulture. To me the work of these departments was a revelation. Each camp has a first-rate hospital, each has its schools and guild hall, and everything is run as only an efficiently managed corporation can run things. 
the Dosanak village is less like one's idea of a coal camp than of a pretty suburban development, or a military post, with officers' houses built around a parade. The grounds are well kept, there is a tennis court with vine-clad trellises about it, a fine playground for children, pretty brick walks, with splendid trees to shade them, and there is a brick schoolhouse which is a better building, better equipped, better lighted, and, above all, better ventilated than the schools I attended in my boyhood. Near the school is the guild hall, which is used for religious services, meetings, and entertainments, and best of all, perhaps, the houses are not the rows of sad, and painted cabins one remembers having seen in western mining camps, but are pretty cottages, touched with a slight architectural variety, and with little variations of color, so that each home has individuality. The schools are financed partly by the company and partly by the parents of the 3,000 scholars. The teachers are, for the most part, graduates of leading colleges Smith, Wellesley, Vassar, the University of Chicago, the University of Wisconsin and educational work of great variety is carried on, including instruction in English for foreign employees, and domestic science classes for women separate establishments, of course, for whites and blacks, for the color line is drawn in southern mining camps as elsewhere, Negroes are, however, better provided for by the corporation than by most southern municipalities, both in the way of living conditions and of education, on the whole. I believe that a child who grows up in the Dosana village, and is educated there, has actually a better chance than one who grows up in most Alabama towns, or, for the matter of that, in towns in any other state which has not compulsory education. Moreover, I doubt that there is in all Alabama another kindergarten as truly charming as the one we visited at Dosana, or that their island in the state, a schoolhouse of the same size which is as perfect as the one we saw in that camp. In another camp old houses have been remodeled, giving practical demonstration of what can be done in the way of making a hovel into a pretty home by the intelligent use of a little lattice work, a little paint, and a few vines and flowers. Old boarding houses in this neighborhood have been converted into community houses, with entertainment halls, shower baths, and other conveniences for the men and their families. Thus tests are being made to discover whether it is possible to encourage among certain classes of foreign laborers whose habits of life have not, to put it mildly, been of the tidiest, some appreciation of the standard of civilization represented by clean, pretty cottages, pleasant meeting houses, and shower baths, I have not told about the billiard tables, bowling alleys, and game rooms of the clubs, nor about the model rooms fitted up to show housewives how they may make their homes attractive at but slight expense, nor about the annual medical examination of the children nor about the company dentists who charge their patients only for the cost of gold actually used, nor about the fine company store at Edgewater Mine, nor about the excellent meats supplied by the company butchers, nor about the low prices of supplies, nor about the effort to discourage employees from buying cheap furniture at high prices on the installment plan, nor, above all, about the clean, decent, happy look of the families we chance to see. Even had I the space in which to tell of these things, it is perhaps wiser that I refrain from doing so, for I am aware that in speaking anything but ill of a great corporation I have scandalously outraged precedent, nor does it argue well for my powers of observation, or those of my companion. I feel confident that where our limited visions perceived only prosperity and contentment, certain of my brother writers, and his brother illustrators would, in our places, have rent thee thin vaporish veil of apparent corporate kindliness, 
and found such foul shame, such hideous malignity, such grasping, grubby greed, such despicable soul-destroying despotism, as to shock the simple nature of a chief of the old-time Russian secret police. It shames me to think what my friend Lincoln's twins could have done had he but enjoyed my opportunities. It shames me to think what John Reed or other gifted writers for the masses could have done, and I should think that Wallace Morgan would writhe with shame, for, where our young would have seen heavy jowled, pig and capital, in a silk hat and a check suit, whirling a cruel knout over the broad and noble but bent and shuddering back of labor where Boardman Robinson would have found a mother, her white, drawn face half hidden by the shoddy shawl of black, to which cling the hands of her emaciated brood what has Wallace Morgan seen? A steel plant in operation, a company steel plant, a corporation steel plant, a trust steel plant, yet never so much as a starving cat or a pile of garbage in the foreground. Chapter XL The Road to Arcady Before we saw the train which was to take us from Birmingham to Columbus, Mississippi, we began to sense its quality. When we attempted to purchase parlor car seats of the ticket agent at the Union Station and were informed by him that our train carried no parlor car. It seemed to us that his manner was touched with cynicism, and this impression was confirmed by his reply to our further timid inquiry as to a dining car, where do you gentlemen reckon you're a-going to? Anyhow, presently we passed through the gate and better understood the nature of the ticket agent's thoughts. The train consisted of several untidy day coaches, the first a Jim Crow car, the others four white people. The Negro car was already so full that many of its occupants had to stand in the aisle. But this did not seem to trouble them, for all were gabbling happily, and the impression one got, in glancing through the door, was of many sets of handsome white teeth displayed in as many dark grinning faces. There are innumerable things for which we cannot envy the Negro, but neither his teeth nor his good nature are among them. It was Saturday afternoon, and the two or three other cars, though not overcrowded, were well filled with people from the neighboring mining towns who were going home after having spent the morning shopping in the city. Almost all our fellow passengers carried packages, many had infants with them, and we were struck with the fact that the complexions of these people suggested a diet of pie-fried pie. If there be such a thing that a peculiarly high percentage of them suffered from diseases of the eye, and that the pervading smell of the car in which we sat was of oranges, bananas, babies, and overheated adults, the young mother in the seat in front of us had with her three small children, the youngest an infant in arms. She was feeding a banana to the second child, who looked about two years old. Behind us a clean, capable-looking woman talked in a broad Scottish dialect with another housewife whose jargon was that of the mountaineers. The region through which the train presently began to wind its way was green and hilly, and there were many stops at villages, all of them mining camps apparently made up of shabby little cabins scattered helter-skelter upon the hillsides. In many of the cabin doorways mothers lingered with their broods watching the train, and on all the station platforms stood crowds of idlers men, women, and children, negro and white many of the men stamped, by their coldly grind faces, their stained overalls, and the lamps above the visors of their caps, as mine workers. After a time my companion and I moved to the exceedingly dirty smoking room at the end of the car where we sat and listened to the homely conversation of a group of men who seemed not only to know one another, but to know the same people in towns along the line. Between stations they gossiped, smoked, chewed, spat, and swore together like so many New England crossroad sages, but when the train stopped they gave encouraging attention to the droll performances of one of their number, a shaggy, and shaven, 
Rabon man, of middle age, gray-haired and collarless, who sat near the window and uttered convincing imitations of the sounds made by chickens, roosters, pigs, goats, and crows. The platform crowds, the Negroes in particular, were mystified and lured by this animal chorus coming from a passenger coach. On hearing it they would first gaze in astonishment at the car, then edge up to the windows and doors, and peer in with eyes solemn, round, and wondering, only to be more amazed than ever by the discovery that the car housed neither bird nor beast. This bucolic comedy was repeated at every station until we reached Wyatt, Alabama, where our gifted fellow traveler arose, plumped his collar button toward the door, bade us farewell, and departed, saying that he was going to walk over to Democrat. Presently the conductor dropped in for a chat, in the course of which he informed the assembly that a certain old lady in one of the towns along the way had died the night before, whereupon our companions of the smoking room, all of whom seemed to have known the old lady well, held a protracted discussion of her history and traits. After a time my companion and I put in a few questions about the state of Mississippi, boiled down. The principal information we gathered was as follows, by the 1910 census Mississippi had not one city of 25.000 inhabitants. Meridian, with 23.000, was and probably still is her metropolis, with Jackson and Vicksburg, cities of about 20.000 each. Following, the entire state has but 15 cities having a population of 5,000 or more, so that, of a total of about a million and three quarters of people in the state more than half of them colored, only about one-tenth live in towns with a population of 5,000 or over. After a little visit the conductor went away. Now and then a man would leave us and get off at a station, or some new passenger would join our group. Presently I found myself thinking about dinner, and asked a man wearing an electric blue cap if he knew what provision was made for the evening meal. Before he could reply the train boy, who had come into the smoking room a few minutes before, piped up. He was a train boy of a type I had supposed extinct, the kind of train boy one might have encountered on almost any second-rate train twenty years ago. A bold, impudent young smartleck, full of insistent salesmanship and obnoxious conversation. He declared that dinner was not to be had, and that the only sustenance available en route consisted in the uninviting assortment of fruit, nuts, candy, and sweet tepid beverages contained in his basket. Fortunately for us, the man we had addressed knew better. What do you want to lie like that for, boy? He demanded. You know as well as I do that the brakeman takes on five boxes of lunch at Coven. Well, said the boy, with a grin, I gotta sell things, ain't I? The brakeman hadn't oughta had that graft anyhow. I'd oughta have it. He gets them lunches for two bits and sells em for thirty-five cents. Far from feeling abashed. He was pleased with himself. Folks is funny people, remarked a man with a weather-beaten face who sat in the corner seat, and seemed to be addressing no one in particular. I know a boy that's going to get hung someday, and when they've got the noose rigged nice around his neck, and everything ready, and the trap awaiting to be sprung, why, then that boy is going to be so sorry for himself that he won't hardly know what to do. He'll say, I ain't never had no chance in life. I ain't. The world ain't never used me right. Yes. Folks is funny people. After the soliloquy there occurred a brief silence in the smoking room, and presently the train boy took up his basket and went upon his way. You say they take on the lunches at Coven now? One of the passengers asked of the man in the electric blue cap. Yes. What's become of old man with me? Over to Fayetteville? 
They used to get lunches off of him, replied the other, but the old man wasn't none too dependable. Now and then he'd oversleep, and folks on the 5 a.m. out of Columbus was like to starve for breakfast. Right smart shock-headed boy the old man's got, put in another. The old man gives him anything he wants. He wanted a motorcycle, and the old man give him one. Then he wanted one of them hot candy machines, they cost about $250, but the old man give it to him just the same. The kid went to San Francisco with it, didn't he? Asked the man with the electric blue cap. He started to go there, replied the former speaker, but he only got as fur as Little Rock, then he come on back home, and the old man bought him a wireless telegraph plant. Yope, that boy gets messages right out on the air from Washington, D.C. and Berlin and every place. The Govingwood don't allow him to tell you much of it. He tells a little, though just to give you a notion. So, through the five-hour ride the conversation ran. Several times the talk drifted to politics and to the European war, but the politics discussed were local and lopsided, and the war was all too clearly regarded as something interesting but vague and remote. On the entire journey not one word was spoken indicating that the people of this section had the least grasp on any national question or that they were considering national questions, or that they realized what the war in Europe is about that it is a war for freedom and democracy, a war against war, a war to prevent a few individuals from ever again plunging the world into a war, nor, though the day of our entry into the war was close at hand, had the idea that we might be forced to take part in the conflict so much as occurred to any of them, they were not stupid people, on the contrary, some of them possessed a homely and picturesque philosophy, but they were not informed, and the reason they were not informed has to do with one of the chief needs of our rural population especially the rural population of the South. What they need is good newspapers. They need more world news and national news in place of county news and local briefs, in the whole South. Moreover, there is need for general political news instead of biased news written always from inside the Democratic Party, and sandwiched in between patent medicine advertisements. Chapter XLIO Mississippi Town It was dark when, after a journey of 120 miles at the rate of 20 miles an hour, we reached Columbus, a city which was never intended to be a metropolis and which will never be one. Columbus is situated upon a bluff on the east bank of the Tombigbee River, to the west of which is a very fertile lowland region, filled with plantations, the owners of which, a century ago, founded the town in order that their families might have churches, schools, and the advantages of social life. As the town grew, a curious but entirely natural community spirit developed, when a gas plant, waterworks, or hotel was needed, prosperous citizens got together and financed the enterprise, not so much for profit as for mutual comfort. In these antebellum times the planters used to make annual journeys to Mobile and New Orleans, going by boat on the Tombigbee and taking their crops and their families with them. After selling their cotton and enjoying themselves in the city, they would load supplies for the ensuing year upon river boats and return to Columbus, where the supplies were transferred to their vast attic storerooms. Though their only water transportation was to the southward, they did not journey invariably in that direction, but sometimes made excursions to such fashionable watering places as the Virginia Springs, or Saratoga, to which they drove in their own carriages, when, in the early days of railroad building, the Mobile and Ohio Railroad was being planned. The company proposed to include Columbus as one of its main line points and asked for a right of way through the town and a cash bonus in consideration of the benefits Columbus would derive from railroad service. 
both requests were refused, the railroad company then waived the bonus and attempted to obtain a right of way by purchase, but to no purpose, the citizens would not sell, they did not want a railroad, they were prosperous and healthy, and they contended that a railroad would bring poor people and disease among them, besides killing farm animals and causing runaways, the company was consequently forced to make a new survey, and when the line was built it passed at a distance of a dozen miles or more from the city, gradually dawned the air of speed and impatience, people who had hitherto been satisfied to make long journeys in horse-drawn vehicles, and had refused the railroad a right of way, now began to complain of the 12-mile drive to the nearest station, and to suggest that the company build a branch line into the town, but this time it was the railroad's turn to say Number and Columbus was informed that if it wished a branch line it could go ahead and build it at its own expense, this was finally done at a cost of $50,000, with the construction of the branch line, carriages fell into disuse and dilapidation, and many an old barouche, landa, and Brett passed into the hands of the Negro hackmen who were former slaves of the old families. Among these ex-slaves the traditions of the first families of Columbus were upheld long after the war, and it thus happened that when, a few years since, a young New Yorker, arriving for a visit in the town, alighted from his train, he was greeted by an ancient Negro who, indicating an equally ancient carriage, cried, Hack, show, hack, show, ain't neither been written by none but the Biluxes. Not every young man from the North would have understood this reference, but by a coincidence it was at the residence of Mrs. Billups that this one had come to visit. Neither as to hack nor habitation were my companion and I so fortunate as the earlier visitor. Our conveyance was a Ford, and the driver warned us, as we progressed through shadowy tree-bordered streets, that the Gilmer Hotel was crowded with delegates who had come to attend the state convention of the Order of the Eastern Star. Nor was his warning without foundation. The wide old-fashioned lobby of the Gilmer was hung with the colors of the order and packed with ladies of the Eastern Star and their ecstatic families. We managed to make our way through the press only to be told by the single worn-out clerk on duty that not a room was to be had. And like the haughty clerk who had dismissed us from the Tootwiller Hotel in Birmingham, the clerk at the Gilmer was not without the quality of mercy. Overworked though he was, he began at once to telephone about the town in an effort to secure us rooms. But if this led us to conclude that our problem was thereby in effect solved, we discover, 